This is George Lynch, and you are listening to the George Lynch Hunting Podcast Show from Legendary Gear. The time is now, and the season is open to become your own legend. Hang with us as we talk all things hunting to keep you tipping toenails all year long. We've got you covered with hunting, strategy, tips, tactics, gear, and we'll even share some stories from the field and insights from the experts. We'll even cover waterfowl, turkey, deer, elk, bear, moose, and predator. Basically, if we can hunt it, we're going to talk about it. So listen in and subscribe to the George Lynch Hunting Podcast Show. Hey guys, it's George Lynch of Legendary Gear, game call company that's legend by design. Hope everyone's doing fine out there and suffering and making it through the late uh, winter and getting all fired up for a new turkey season fast approaching us. With uh, people that know me well, one of the big things that we loved and, and structured when we started Legendary Gear was about designing calls that uh, about calling critters in. I love to call anything that will answer a call, whether it be an elk, a deer, a waterfowl, goose, turkey. I mean, it's I love it all. And one of the things at Legendary Gear that we kind of pride ourselves in is, number one, we are hunters. Number two, we do know about manufacturing. We have experience in design. And number three, making the best quality calls we can. And the fourth, which I think is very important, we keep pretty much everything in our own hands, in-house. We have the control over our quality, over our marketing, over our, our manufacturing, that we put out the best of the best. And uh, so excited what we put together this year, really our first strong year putting a turkey product out there. And a lot of you, that um, <clears throat> I don't know what you use. Some, you know, If you're a mouth call, friction call, you know, box call, push button, whatever it is, you know, each each has its use, but uh, I kind of like, I would say that if I were to measure myself as a turkey hunter, when I'm looking at the calling part of it, I would probably say that I am probably 70% a mouth call, probably 20% um, a friction call, and probably 10% a box call. And box calls, you say box calls, I mean, box calls are kind of for guys who are beginners. Now, box call is really great to me for that uh, long distance. Do I use a box call every day when I'm hunting turkeys? Absolutely not. Is it a tool that I might use, oh, once or twice in a week? Absolutely. It all depends on, number one, location of gobbler. Number two, weather, wind. Um, to me, a box call is really good for reaching out there long distance. It, it, it's good for, especially I like to tune mine a little bit higher pitch. And what I'm basically doing is that higher pitch travels a lot further than you know, like your, your mouth call or even your friction call. That box call can reach probably 10 times further, reaching through that, cutting through that, that wind and the air. So box call, great in that aspect of it. When I talk about mouth calls, you know, Diane and I, when we looked at making legendary gear, we wanted the best materials whether it's uh, prophylactic, whether we're using latexes, we wanted the best of even our tape, of having the best tape. And then once we got it there, it has to be to the right stretch, to the right pull. And I would say that it's a personal preference with me. Um, I basically know what I like in a diaphragm. It, you know, the diaphragm that I like, is it perfect that everybody likes? Probably not the perfect, but probably for the average uh, turkey hunter out there. I would say that 
I, I might have two different types. I'm a batwing is probably my favorite. I would say that my number one favorite is our two reed batwing that we make. We make a two reed. And then the third reed, we have a three reed bat ring. I like that a lot. It's going to be a little louder. It's going to take a little more air. I could do a little bit louder cutting and stuff. But for that overall, that two reed bat wing, man, is hard to beat for getting the soft purrs, soft clucks. It's good for when those birds, I would say, anywhere as soon as they get 100 yards and end, it doesn't, they, their hearing is exceptional for one thing. Unless, again, like I said, you, if you're hunting a very, very strong wind, um, periodic, don't call too much anyway in a strong wind once they have them come in because birds, a lot of times when they're moving in strong winds, they're very quiet anyway. They don't get very vocal when, when it's strong and windy. And a lot of times it is strong and windy, depending on they're coming in. They don't hear, you can't hear them. They, if, if the wind is traveling from you to them, they hear you where you're not actually going to be hearing them as gobbling as much because that wind is going away from you, taking that sound. So a lot of times when you're sitting there and you set up, you know, I'm using my eyes and my visual for pretty much all of it, not depending. I mean, it's nice if you could hear them gobbling. Man, does that make a difference, turkey hunting, when you can hear them from the roost coming all the way in. But like I said, there's times that when we pick up one or I see one coming, once he starts coming in and, you know, Listen for a few uh, slight gobbles here and there, but basically, guys, I'm periodic calling and I'm using my eyes on everything, looking for every movement, looking for a hen that might be sliding in from in front of him. But um, that's, you know, I would say the two-read batwing to a three-read batwing. I do like a combo cut, but I'd say those three and all three of those we make are, are solid in the Legendary Gear lineup. The two-read, again, is a great finesse when when you're working that bird and you could there's mornings you might be able to sit there just from the roost uh hear that bird gobbling and hitting some little soft soft yelps a little soft uh uh purr and then maybe do one fly down cackle and shut up the whole time and he i mean fly right down into the decoys and boom it's over uh, that's the way we like it it's how we always dream our perfect turkey hunt can be but doesn't always go that way <clears throat> so there's some mornings that I like to even, depending on that gobbler again, you know, they'll, they'll gobble from the roost. And this is probably what you'll add if you talk to a lot of interview, uh, majority of the turkey hunters out there, that, man, they were just going hot on the roost, hit the ground, they shut right up. Well, 
that's probably because they had hens with them. And the goblin, when they're on that roost, they know that they're the excitement. They got the hens all around there. They know the hens are going to be on the ground. You got that gobbler, he, especially if it's a more mature gobbler, he knows that he's got some jakes out there. He's probably got, you know, he's got a little band of two-year-olds who, in my opinion, are a, a, a mature gobbler's worst nightmare is, is jakes and, and two-year-olds because uh, they will beat up a single big gobbler on his own. They will destroy him, beat him up. Um, they can be hard on them, especially, you know, if you're hunting an area, if you're after a particular gobbler, sometimes if you've got uh, a, a population of, of, of some jakes and a bunch of two-year-olds in there, you might want to spend some time looking elsewhere, um, trying to find that big singled out bird. Some guys don't pay attention. Two-year-old bird, jake, plenty good. That's the cool thing about turkey hunting. It's all up to you. <clears throat> You're not scoring inches like, you know, with, with a deer or Boone and Crockett. I mean, there is there is scoring systems for turkeys out there, but it all depends. I mean, there's a lot of guys out there, hey, he's got a beard, he's got he's got a spur, boom, he's good enough for me. I killed my turkey, and God bless him, that's awesome. He's got a full fan, and uh, that's a mature turkey. A lot of guys, you know, they, they base their trophy turkey on the fan. You know, the Jake has the high tail fan in the middle and or longer tail feathers and shorter on the outside. You all know that's a jake. The full fan is, is a two-year-old bird or older, and that's good enough for a lot of people. And, you know, that's what makes turkey hunting so great. But uh, turkey season's starting up there in Florida right now. That's usually, I think, the first state that starts that has the turkey season is the Osceola down in Florida. I think they start the first week of March. I and mean, there's guys down there, I'm sure, started this week. You'll probably start seeing a few pictures out on social media um, with the... Uh, the first Osceola turkey that, that, that they're, uh, that, that's being harvested in the country. Uh, never had a chance to hunt a Florida turkey. I thought it would always be cool. Um, I just love hunting the eastern turkeys that we have so plentiful here in, in the Midwest, Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Iowa. We've been kind of blessed where we lived. and We've been blessed in, in the Iowa in the last uh, six, seven years hunting turkeys here in Iowa. We've been blessed uh, on the average of we've killed some pretty large uh, body birds. I mean, from Michigan, I think an average gobbler that we might have killed in Michigan might have been 20 to 21 pounds. Um, we've shot some fairly large gobblers out here in Iowa. I think last year in the 2021 season, I think our, the four gobblers we killed, our average weight was 27, 27 and a half pounds. That's a pretty big difference. Um, what do I think it is? I think, well, I think genetics one thing. I think whether it's, it could be a different strain. I think we were hunting older birds, again, kind of like with whitetails. And I think the soil between the crop and, and, um, and it's just more than the crops. There's bugs. I mean, turkeys seem to eat about everything. But uh, I would have to have to go with, with time, um, you know, the birds being able to, to put on. And as long as that winter isn't that hard that they can get to, um, if we're lucky and our, we have a good, you know, we'll have snow in our winters, but if we can keep from getting that frozen, freezing ice underneath that snow in the wintertime, that's what you got to watch when you're watching your turkeys, you know, especially if you can, can control your area and you want to help in the late season and supplemental feeding, that is the time to do it with turkeys and with deer as, as well. But turkeys and pheasants and the quail, they suffer big time. When you have a frozen crust underneath that snow, 
and the birds can't get down through that to get to the food. So a lot of them will will starve to death. You'll see that sponge that area in their chest. You know, it gets pretty thin and, and weak. And uh, it's pretty tough on a bird when they get that frozen type of, of ground. Um, I've heard, you know, and we've also seen, you know, that some of the gobblers can get beard rot where they'll lay in there and their beard will get frozen into the snow. And as they pull off, it cuts that beard right off. That happens. And, and you'll see that probably more into the northern states where they had deeper snow. Um, when you're talking, when you're getting 16 to 18, 20 inches of snow, I think it's when you're starting to see areas like that and that happening. But uh, we're ramping up. Uh, our This year, the turkeys seem to be making it pretty good. We haven't had had the freezing weather underneath the snow. We've had snow, but um, with the, the uh, ex- exposure to the farm ground and being able to get to crops and and stuff like that, I think it's been a big benefit for our turkeys. They seem to be pretty healthy. Uh, a lot of the local people that we talked to, I know last year in the bitter cold, um, I had talked to people in the early spring, had found some dead carcasses that didn't make it through the winter. But this year so far, we seem pretty lucky and pretty good. Uh, I know the DNR, that uh, it might have been three years ago here, they had us cut a leg off out here in Iowa, and they gave you a special bag and a special envelope to to send the turkey foot in to get examined and actually let them know what what road to even to what uh, what city but what road and, and part of the county that you killed that turkey and whatever they were looking for I I think you know it's it's research because the last two or three years our turkey populations nationwide especially on the easterners have been taking a little bit of a decline now. I don't know what those studies have brought up. I don't know what the DNR, it'd be interesting to get a biologist on one of our, maybe we'll get a a biologist here in one of our podcasts and see if we can discuss and talk about some of that information gathered and what they were looking for. But my educated guess, especially being nationwide, for me, I would say that uh, especially out here in Iowa, I had friends who were trappers. And the trapping nationwide, is, I would say, is a huge decline. Uh, even when I was a kid, there was people who had uh, who hunt raccoons, where raccoons were a huge uh, sport in Michigan. I mean, uh, the price of a coon, a walker, or any type of coon hound, you know, the prices were, they could be in the thousands for a good walker, a good coon hound. And I knew guys who had, they used to have beagle clubs, they had coon clubs, that uh, for hunting, you know, that did the trapping and do- guys who hunted raccoons with dogs and for fur prices, and what generated that was because of fur prices. And I think at that time they might have been 20 and $30 for a raccoon. And you take a guy who goes out and in a night could get 10 or 20 raccoons, well, that was a good night's uh, worth of work. Well, today, because fur prices has just basically been bottom out and the, and the flower sniffers and far left people who don't see trapping as, as, as so inhumane, well, you, you lose a balance, and people aren't hunting raccoons and possums for, for food. They're basically you know, wiping them out because they're, they're, they're pests. And I think the decline in trapping with causing an incline, uh, incline in population between uh, possums and raccoons who are robbing nests like crazy, they're egg robbers, and they eat tons of baby turkeys. Uh, raccoons is terrible, and so is a possum. And they're getting a free pass on this, and I hate saying this, but 
I tell everybody, I see shoot every raccoon and possum. If you're a turkey hunter and rabbit hunter and, and all this other stuff, I shoot every raccoon possum you can. Um, we have horses and possums play havoc and, you know, if they pee on the hay and everything like this, they're just a pest of an animal. And so my opinion, you know, just the people who used to trap um, what state, you know, the old timers, it kind of, once it left out, and if you weren't in a generation that picked up from the old timers or a family that came from trappers, you know, you happen to be someone who just picked it up. Well, you know, basically the money's going to keep you in the game and you might do it for a year or two, but the, you know, if the money's not there and can't pay for your, your $5,000 dog or two or three dogs they have and your time you put in, well, it, it goes out to the side. Um, I know there's a lot of people who love to hunt coyotes and there's a lot of, you know, predator hunting and shooting thermal, uh, using the thermal um, glass now and hunting coyotes at night. And, you know, which is, I think is more of a help to the deer herd, eliminating the coyotes. But I think personally, when it comes down to the turkey population, I, whether it's the bob, you know, they tell me bobcat, but the bobcat and I believe the raccoon and possum are, you know, three major culprits. And, and annihilating our turkey population. I think a big contribution in uh, annihilating this turkey population. And uh, even, I think I even filmed a couple years ago here at the house. We've had a hen, uh, she's a bearded hen. And um, I don't know why a guy said, man, that'd be cool to shoot a bearded hen. And to me, a hen's a hen. She produces babies. She doesn't have seed uh, to make, uh, you know, several um, brews like uh, one Tom can do, you know, whether she's got a beard or not, she's still a hen and can produce a lot of turkey. So I think it's, uh, she's off limits. You, know, you want to shoot a gobbler, you shoot a gobbler, shoot a male. But uh, we've had a hen here. I think she's been here last summer was the third summer. I saw her here bring her brew into the yard and they actually live with us. Um, they've gotten more acquainted. So they haven't seen my wife and I as danger as much as, as the uh, bobcats and, and the possums. In fact, I even took a video one day that she was in the yard and a possum was chasing her young ones out around here in the yard. Any of you guys, any of your areas, I'm telling you what, it is worth the effort of getting back in the trapping just to keep these nuisance animals, I think, in a control and to, to annihilate them, to eliminate them. I think that they're, they... To me, it was a big jeopardizing of our population. It's just a common sense thing. You know, we can come up with so many in, in social media. Everybody's an expert. I get it. But if you kind of use common sense a little bit, which I know might be a foreign thing that people don't use too much anymore. But when trapping, let's look at this. You know, when we talk about the biggest turkey population, and I talk some of the old timers here. I mean, they used to tell me in the spring, in the winter, see 100 to 150 turkeys out in the field here. And at that time, we're probably talking the early 2000s, late 1900s, 1900s late 1990s, early 2000s. Um, I wasn't around for the early 1900s, but um, trapping was big. Trapping was strong. And I think that trapping kept the predation and our turkeys down and the turkeys uh, um, thrived at it. And then, you know, nobody's trapping. Possums, raccoons are, are, I mean, you talk to farmers, oh my gosh, 
uh, a lot of the farmers I talk to, especially around their silos and around the barns at the anywhere that they've ha, you know got grain that they have to use, you know that the raccoons are just filthy. And I'm trying to think that fly bait was something that the farmers used to use a lot. I've heard people talk, you know, it was um, it was a poison that you mixed with Coca-Cola, and it was like two-step process. It was it was actually meant to eliminate flies in around the livestock. But they found that the raccoons, if you mixed it with Coca-Cola, it became sweet. Raccoons couldn't resist it, and you could basically control your raccoon population. Well, I think um, in the latter years, it's been known that they've been using it for that. And I've been told that they've uh, cut way back on the poison. It's not near as strong. You know, it's, it's changed the whole thing and the whole way they do it. But um, I definitely think if, we, if you're looking in your areas that we need to get back trapping and at least try to keep a predator control. And I think you'll see your turkey population increase a bunch. But uh, talking about scouting on these turkeys and stuff, you know, every year when I, I start my scouting on turkeys and I have a regiment that every morning when I get up, I, I know my areas. I have probably a 10 mile, eight to 10 mile area that I, I drive every morning, every evening. That is my scouting area, areas I know I can hunt. Uh, areas that it might have uh, my hunting area might adjacent to. But in the mornings, you know, you get up in that morning and I'll break it off, but basically I'm going in areas when I know birds are still on the roost and you're doing a listening, it's listening to them. And the early season, uh, you, you definitely, you know, you, you're going to get more of the gobbles. You're going to find more of them until the season starts. Then more of the pressure gets out there, more birds get, again, it's like anything else more that you put pressure out there and man is a man is out there and his presence is known, well, turkeys are going to be quiet. Pressured uh, turkeys and whitetails and everything like that, um, you know, the, the survival is going to become uh, first before their, their breeding and everything else. So in the early season, I'll drive around and, and I, I know my areas that I'm looking for. I'm listening to the gobblers. If I hear gobblers and I pretty much know Back and where they're, they're, if I hear them gobbling, I can kind of pretty much know where they're going to come out and what ravines and what fields they're going to be using, you know, trying to do my homework and, and doing my scouting. <clears throat> One of the things that I myself, and uh, you hear a lot of people complain, and I mentioned that earlier in the, in the podcast, was gobblers getting hinned up. You hear that, that terminology, they're hinned up. And what do you do when they're hinned up? Well, you know, if you're that guy who has to get out of bed early every morning at, at, at 4 o'clock and, and you know, every day he's going to do that no matter what, and I'm going to go out there and sit in the dark, and then I'm going to wait till 9.30, 10 o'clock, and I'm going to catch him heading back to, you know, when, they, when the hens leave. Personally, when birds get henned up, and, and me is a little bit different. I kind of do hunt a particular gobbler. I try to. Um, is it? Is there something wrong if I shot a two-year-old? Uh, no, it's just me. I, I live here. I have the time. If uh, if I have a good three to four-year-old bird that I know is out there, you know, I'm gonna go after him. I don't have to fill that tag. It's kind of a bird. I kind of like. It's fun. The game starts. Um, if he gets killed or something happens, you know, there's if you got enough area, then there's there's always the bird number two to go after. And it's about opportunities. And usually the uh, first birds that we go after is now my wife's into turkey hunting, a successful turkey hunter, and likes it. 
you know, we kind of, we let her, I like to let her fill her tag, be the first one, get that easy one out of the way. Um, so the scouting goes, it definitely pays off. And then it's just, we have, because we're filming and I'm hunting with my wife or I'm hunting with someone else, I would say that I've done, uh, I'm doing a lot more turkey hunting out of pop-up blinds. Um, some guys, there's nothing wrong running and gunning. I grew up running and gunning turkeys. And for you guys to understand what running and gunning means, means I have a decoy or I might not have a decoy, just my turkey vest, my gun, my camo. And I'm out in the woods sitting against the base of a tree calling when the bird moves. I get up and I move ahead of the bird and it's running and gunning. You get up, if the bird moves, you move, you move with him. When you put up a pop-up blind, you set up, you're basically trying to hunt that bird. That morning's hunt is it's it's there. If it don't happen, you know, you're you're not pulling the blind back down and and heading on to another spot, throwing it back up. It gets it's a little tough. But usually when I pop my blind up and and I've done my homework, I feel pretty good that that, that turkey's got a 50-50 chance that morning of going back home in my back of my tail uh truck. So but we asked, why do you like using the pop-up blind? It's so much nicer when you're hunting with someone else. When I'm hunting with, you know, especially when I'm hunting with a kid, hunting with my wife, hunting with another new hunter, you know, movement is, is key. And any time with me, I guess I'm, my wife would tell you, I'm all about being quiet and I'm all about no moving. And it's when you're sitting out there, especially in the earlier spring, it's pretty tough to sit out there and, and, um, you know, not make any movement. And when you're getting a new hunter out there, it's nice to have coffee. It's nice to take a little snack in between. Make it hunt fun. My wife likes to sit there. We can talk. We can try to video. We can. She can move back and forth. She can sit up and be comfortable. Um, it just makes the the the, the hunt and and being in the hunt, putting up with the hunt, not having to sit there in, into the open elements. If I were to hunt by myself. I still run and gun, still like to sit. But today we're sharing a her and we're trying to film and, and capture the, the ground blind sure has made a big difference in that. And, um, and the thing about turkeys, I don't understand it. They have no concepts to ground blinds. Now you take that ground blind and they always say, if a turkey could smell like a whitetail, you'd never kill one. I got to disagree because <laughs> uh, if you were to go take and put a pop-up blind in the middle of the field, the whitetail is going to give you all kinds of crap. I mean, they just, unless it's been out there and they once they associate that and it's been there for a while and it becomes part of the scenery, the whitetails don't accept a sudden change. They notice that right away. And um, about a turkey, I can go throw that blind out there and put a, oh, as long as I put a decoy in front of that blind, that turkey, and I've done this. I mean, I've done this. We've called turkeys in for guys hunting with traditional gear and a traditional, I mean like a recurve or a longbow. And I have actually put that decoy, whether you want it at 15 yards and you want to shoot him with a gun at 20, or I've taken it in three or four steps from the blind and had the gobbler right at that decoy at three or four steps. It all depends where the guy wants to shoot it. And, but the blind played in no part, um, a deterrent than that gobbler. And a great story was last year we did our scouting and my wife is the opening day, opening morning. It's She's up to bat and I had already had the blind out and had it out the day before and had everything set and kind of set it on the backside of a swamp. And now this field, it's a field that's open where people are driven by the road 
you know, I have permission, it's private property, but people driving by the road, you know, they can see the birds out in that field strutting. And then you got deer who cross and trust me, deer can ruin a turkey hunt as fast as anything. And this morning, my, my wife got, and there was a lot of gobbling in the, in the two mornings in a row before the season, why I chose this location. But because of the opening morning, there was some pressure on the south side of us there that the birds were only gobbling to the north of us. And we had one individual bird that was, was hammering pretty good. And he did come out in the field, and we got to watch him, and man, it, big bird, um, I think he ended up, he weighed almost 20, 28 and a half pounds, but he was open in the morning and came out. It took almost an hour from the time we saw that bird that he came out and he wanted to come across to us. But as you know, he was working, the hens that, that got you know, from the people who were hunting across the road evidently pushed the hens out and the hens were crossing the road and going over to this gobbler and I was losing him. And so what I like to do, and this is usually when I'll go back to the diaphragm, and I usually go to my, my uh, bat wing, and I'll usually go to my three reed because I want sharp, I want aggressive. And what I do is I'm not calling that gobbler. I know because he, he's going to say, you could do whatever you want to do. If he's got fresh hens going to him, he's not leaving. The key is you got to get that hen to you. And um, so to me, there's always the dominant hen that's in that group. Not every hen's going to be a, a dominant, but there's always that dominant hen. And if you've got a hen that's coming a long ways, coming to a gobbler, she's coming to there. She knows what she's doing. A lot of the times if I'm sitting there and I have, you know, you got your decoy over here. If I got and I'll start cutting, I'll start acting like I'm a, a, a dominant hen. That lets her know that, hey, she better get over there and, and cut this hen off or she's going to take his man away. And then with us, every, I mean, every time that we've had this scenario work, it's going to and cutting and calling that hen. And when that hen starts coming, stay on what you're doing. Just keep it till she comes because I guarantee you, once she makes it halfway, breaks that halfway point coming to you, he's coming. He's going to start. He might let her get a little ahead, you know, ahead of him, and he's out there strutting. But once she gets over that halfway point, that's when he's going to come, and he's going to do half strut and a half run, half strut, half run. And he's going to then get to – he wants to get over to that Jake. And he wants to go over and cut that off. And So anyway, we, we were working with this, having to deal with this. And you know what? We, we were pulled that hand in. We had this gobbler coming. And then all of a sudden, eight deer – came over the hill and came up to the blind. And my wife is like, wow, let me, let me get a picture of these deer. I said, man, do not spook these deer. We got a gobbler. It's 50 yards there, right? These deer right here, if they blow, he's out of here. But luckily the deer had moved on. And, and, um, but at the same time, you know, we're, we're sitting there and we're, we're playing, uh, rolling the dice that hopefully someone doesn't drive by out on the dirt road and, and tries to do a stalk on this turkey or stops their car and, and runs him out of the field. You know, so we're a little bit pressured. And, of course, I got a camera going, and you want to record this. And after about an hour of working this gobbler, he I looked over and, and out the right side of the window. Now I'm, we're facing into a north direction, and from the east, here he's coming. My wife is, is, you know, on the left. I'm filming. I see the bird 
He's 15 yards, 15 steps east of the blind. He is not going to circle around. It's a, we're, we were actually on the uh, downside, downwind side of this little swale. It was great protection because it cut, it was cutting the sight of him off from the road and from the deer and all this other. But he found this little pocket and he stood there watching my Jake decoy. The deer popped up over the hill the second time watching to come down. I literally told my wife, I said, you are going to have to open the window and shoot out the right side of the blind. And even though it's 15 steps, he is not reading the script. And if, if you know me, it's about making sure you get the proper kill. We'll get the photos later. But um, my wife did that. She pulled it off and she kept her patience and cool and raised the window up. And, of course, I'm looking underneath her, her arms as she's just sticking the barrel out. And as she pulls the trigger, the bird goes up in the air lays on his back and doesn't move he doesn't move an inch she uh I shot over your back. She, she used my back for uh as a resting but you do what you got to do but what i'm trying to say if we had been not in that blind you see what i'm saying with, with someone who's not an experienced hunter an experienced uh you know a stalker you know she might not have ever been have the opportunity to shoot that turkey but being able to move and maneuver and my gosh, at 15 yards, you don't need uh, $70 shots or bullets to shoot things at, at 15 steps. And that's what makes it so cool and makes that deal. That's what makes turkey hunting so cool. You know, it's not a, wrong, a long range sport. This is to me, you know, we used to say this, the difference, I used to say this, what's the difference between archery and bow hunting? You know, archery to me was the difference between archery and bow hunting archery is how far you can get away from, uh, get from the bullseye and hit it. Bow hunting is how close you can get without missing, you know? So there's a big difference. You know, you can be a, an archer who likes to practice shooting arrows at all long distances, but if you're a bow hunter, it's about predator skills. It's about being able to shoot, but it's about how close I can get to me. That's the same pride that we take in Turkey hunting. And then I take the same pride in waterfowl hunting. I've, um, all this, the, the shells that we make today, the shells that the, the, the manufacturers make today, they're all great. Even their, the low end uh, stuff is better than we started with years ago. And when we're shooting birds at 25 and, and 20 yards in, and, th and I mean, 30 was your limit. I'm telling you, a 410, I could shoot a head off a gobbler with a 410 at 30 yards. So it, um, and that's the pride of, of, you know, I think I would sit back and if I shot a gobbler at, at 20 steps, to me, it would be uh, amazing. I would say I even go this far shooting a Jake at, at, at 10 steps would be more, would be more, mean more to me than shooting a four or five year old bird at 60 yards. That's the truth. It, to me, it was still, you know, calling that bird in and, and close proximity and watching his eyes blink, hear the spit and drum. I mean, I, yeah, it's another thing is I can't get over how many uh, I call seasoned turkey hunters that I talk to and have never heard a turkey spit or drum. I mean, that, that's close proximity. That's what makes your heart just 
awesome, you know, of, of coming in. My wife filmed, I think it was uh, three years ago, be three years ago this turkey season. I uh, She filmed me shooting one with a bow here uh, not far from home, and that was the coolest hunt and probably the most shook I have ever been on a gobbler. And I shot gobblers with, with a bow before, but it, she was with me. She was filming. You know, I'm I'm the man trying to impress my woman. And that gobbler was, he was loud from the roost. We had hens that right at daylight, I had the blind in the right spot. We had hens that flew down that was walking around in our Dave Smiths. And um, this gobbler was on it the whole way. It was when he got across down the ridge and came off the ridge and crossed a creek. They say don't cross creeks. He crossed the creek. And as soon as you see the camera, he sees the decoy. He puffs up and walks all the way in. We shot him, I don't know, five steps. And he had five beards, weighed 29 pounds. But that was the most heart-pounding. It was in close. Um, that turkey right there was, was, was just... I'll never forget that turkey. And um, and as a funny thing is, I, I shot one that was with a bow, and that same year um, I had two gobblers that I brought. I mean, I was hunting by myself and trying to do a self-film, and I brought this. They were two big gobblers, and they were a long ways away. And, and I was trying to film them, and I was getting filming, but I did bring one of the gobblers, and I got him. Oh, he crossed the ridge. He came across the plowed field. He walked right up within five steps, and I totally whiffed him with the shotgun. <laughs> and I don't know, I, I just, I'm not real good with a pump shotgun trying to pump and shoot another shot with a scope and through the blind and everything else like that. But again, the he was at five steps. And I missed him, and he, was he too close? Yeah, he was probably too close. I probably should have shot him with a bow. But again, what I'm saying is that turkey had me freaking nervous and had my just had it going. So cool, and that's what it's all about. Um, you know, close proximity, making that headshot. And if you miss, I'd rather miss than, than wound. But that's all part, of, and that's another thing, guys. That's part of the game we do. That's part of the the hunt. It is part of is it part of it is missing. We don't plan on it. Does it happen? Yeah, I don't plan on it. Um, it's not something that I did. I just he was so close, and I just happened to pull just a little bit on his head when the gun went off. And you know, I he was probably more surprised than I was. I'm, well, in fact, I'm sure he was more surprised than I was. But um, those are the you know you just. And those are the ones he, he will always be in my mind. I'll see, but I still think I won because I brought that gobbler. I bet you a quarter, three or four hundred yards, quarter mile, three or four hundred yards away. I mean, he was a long ways, and to get him from there and back and forth, and then I had hens in front of me. And then the hens, I thought, man, when the hen left, but, but man, I called the hen back and the hen would come back. And I think it was enough that, uh, you know, it brought him back, released him. And, you know, from that far to five steps, I missed. Did I lose? Not really. I had him at five steps. My heart was still pounding. I got all the entertainment and all the excitement as if I killed him. 
yeah, it'd be nice to put him in the freezer and stuff like that. But what did he, he supplied the entertainment, he supplied the experience and the memory that's burnt in my turkey mind forever. And um, so we can't always be, you know, I always said this uh, you know, a lot. I say this a lot, that failures help successes. They help build success. And um, I probably, again, would probably spend a little bit more to just to let him walk a few more steps out uh, further out and probably got him more at about 15, 20 yards and have been happy and probably would have been a little bit different result. But, you know, here we are, season 100, and you got you know, you're that close proximity. Sometimes the excitement of being close can overwhelm the intellect of making the right decision or the right shot. It happens. But um, we talk about decoys, and here's another thing. I've, I've used, you know, I have a bunch of Dave Smiths, that, and I love Dave's decoys. I, I've used a lot of different ones. I think they're the most realistic out there. But I started in a time when we had the little foam decoys that you, you rolled up and you put them in the backpack. In fact, I can tell you, when I, the first turkey season, I think I was 18 in Michigan turkey season, I got drawn. You had to get picked for a turkey permit in Michigan. And uh, I was drawn, and the state up in Lansing, Michigan, had a turkey school, a one-day turkey school, where you could go up there, and you had different classes throughout the day and different speakers to educate you on how to hunt turkeys. Man, I took advantage of that. And In fact, I, one of the classes I took was how to make your homemade decoy. And basically what you did is we took a pattern of a turkey, hen turkey, uh, a one-dimensional, one-silhouette pattern of a hen turkey, and what you did is we used blue styrofoam, and you 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 traced that on that blue styrofoam, and you drew three different ones. You used a file, a knife, or a hot knife, and you cut that pattern right out, and then we used glue, laminated that three pieces of foam together. You drilled, you, you cut a hole in the bottom, put conduit, a piece of half-inch conduit in the bottom to use that to put your wood st- over your wood stake. But then I would use a rasp, a Smiths and Avian X's and, and everything that you have today. It's, it's a definitely different market. But uh, when it comes to decoys, I know there's a lot of different uh, philosophies and, and uh, what guys like. And like I said, I've used all the hens. I've, used a, had a, I've seen guys who's used up 10 or 12 hens. I've seen that. To me personally... You know, like I said, I like to hunt more mature gobbler, but I don't like hunting with a hen. And I'll tell you why. And the Jake decoy, as you know, my later years, and I say my later experienced years, the Jake decoy has been so successful. And majority of the hunting, when you stop and think about when I'm using this Jake decoy, the Jake decoy, when you're seeing them, a lot of times that gobbler could be outside that woods. He's strutting. You'll see him out strutting there. But that's because he's always got that hen pinned up in the fence row or she's pinned back in the woods. You don't see her. You just see him until all of a sudden he happens to spook and you see her take off. But he was out there the whole time. That's why he's there. And if you ever, you're scouting and you see that gobbler out there and if he's in an open cattle pasture and he's along these fence rows and he's strutting, Buddy, I can guarantee you pretty much there's some hens that are somewhere in that fence row. And he's holding them in there. You don't might not be seeing them. But in my when I sit here and, and that's why I call aggressive, I call to the hens. I'm not calling that gobbler per se. 
if he, and if there's been several times I've had, you know, hens, I've called hens right by me. We filmed this in, in Kentucky, I'll never forget, called the hen right by me. And three different hens went by me, went out to this big gobbler, and he stayed out there 200 yards away. It was a couple of hours. This cat and mouse thing went on. And then finally I got the right hen that I got her to come back. And she did what I said. She When she got started coming back to me and got that broke that halfway point of coming back to me, Man, it's all it took for him. Here he come, you know, strut, run, strut, run. He wasn't going to let that come back to that Jake decoy. And the reason I think this has worked time and time again in my philosophy of it, and that's why I like using if I'm in an open field setup, that's why I always like to have some type of a barrier behind me, whether it's woods, a fence row, something that can, you know, a, a, a hiding hen could be. Um I think that gobbler, when he sits there, he knows that that hen in nature is going to go to him. That's no doubt about it. And that Jake isn't going to do the breeding. But what I think that pisses him off to no end, and this is why I believe it works with just the Jake, that that hen is excited and wants to come, but that Jake is keeping that, pen, that hen pinned down in that woods. And A, that if, especially if it's one Jake. Now, I've done multiple, and I've found that, is worse than having one was multiple jakes. Multiple jakes is not good in the real world. Multiple jakes beat the crap out of big toms. So when you're using that that, that male decoy, if you use a strutter, I like to only use one. If I'm gonna, and I'm not really big in the the, the big strutter either. It seems like with strutters, it's a hit or miss. Either they work or they don't. What I've found is that that um, three quarter strut. That, that the new the decoys that show where that gobbler's wanting to be uh, dom uh, he's trying to be uh, you know he's the strong he's the bully but he's not a hundred percent the bully he's showing a little you know dominion but he's not up there chasing and trying to beat everything so that that half or three quarter strut that Dave Smith has we've been using that the last two years and I'm telling you it's just been amazing. Um, the the response that we're getting on mature gobblers wanting to come in and under that decoy right away, even the hens that are wanting to come to it over the, the live gobblers coming into the field. So, hey, we're going to break down a little more and more about the turkey hunting and, and decoys and calling. Hope you enjoyed uh, what you listened to so far. And remember, always stay safe um, and take a, take a kid hunting. God bless. Well, folks, Thank you for listening to the George Lynch Hunting Podcast Show, brought to you by Legendary Gear, the game call company that is legend by design. Be sure to check out all of our game calls at legendarygearusa.com. Legendary Gear has superior waterfowl and turkey calls to keep you tipping toenails. Every waterfowl call is hand-tuned by myself, so hunt smart and stay safe. This is George Lynch signing off until next week on the George Lynch Hunting Podcast Show.